Hello, everybody. Welcome to the mailbag. Come on in and see the wonderful insides of this bag of mail. And you'll see that uh, Andy Brassel is over there in the corner having a cup of tea, waiting for you and I to go over there and prod him with some questions about European football. Andy, how you doing? Mailbag. I'm good, thanks. <laughs> He's just a rascal, Andy Brassel. Good to have you with us, my man. Uh, Andy. I thoroughly approve of that remix. <laughs> it may surface its beautiful head on the Football Ramble podcast one day coming soon when oh, we're in the pod next time. Now, Andy, enough of all this nonsense. I want to uh, put this question to you on behalf of Ben Wardropper. I think that's how you pronounce that name, Ben. Ben Wardropper. Ben Wardropper. Does he drop the war? I don't know. But he is asking this. Based on the success of Sevilla in recent seasons, is there some kind of logic or financial gain in teams of that ilk aiming for a third-place finish in their Champions League group stage in the hope of uh, winning the Europa? So finishing third in the first round of the, the Champions League, so you go into the Europa knowing that games against Bayern and Barcelona would be beyond them in the knockout rounds of the Champions League. So you see what he's getting there. You see what old Benny boy is getting there, Andy. Is it worth kind of, you get to the Champions League, you get a few quid, and then you think, right, actually, do you know what? The Europa League's really where where our kind of uh, 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 sort of ceiling is, I suppose, for a club like yes. Sevilla, because they can dominate the Europa League, but realistically, they're not going to win the Champions League, certainly not and without some huge investment, you'd say. And I think as well, the thing that you have to add to that is the fact that Sevilla are, are not an elite club, um, no. either by history or in, in, in current actuality, because for them to have won six Europa Leagues in 16 years, if you go back 20 years, and say by the year 2020, you, you will have won the Europa League six times. No one would believe you. I mean, it is incredible the job yeah. that they have done. And they've they've transformed um, the uh, global profile of the club. They've uh, transferred, transformed the image of the club. And um, they've played some pretty good football along the way with some fantastic players, which was not something that, Sevilla were known for a, a couple of decades ago. I mean, I remember when I first started going uh, regularly to Spain and writing on games. And at that point, Sevilla would have been, um, the main characters would have been Joaquin Capados, the, the the coach who later came back for a very short, quite unusual spell in charge. And um, most Andalusian man alive, but very much in tune with the um, working class um, spit and sawdust values that he saw of the club, which mm -hmm. meant uh, let's not concentrate on the flash stuff. Let's kick everything that moves. And um, one of their key players and, you know, their captain for a, for a while was um, a guy called um, Pablo Alfaro, uh, who was uh, known as the, Doctor for, for, for two reasons. Um, firstly, um, because uh, he was actually medically qualified as, as a doctor. He was a very clever guy, Alfaro. And secondly, because he'd uh, performed what can only be described as a prostate exam on an opposition striker whilst defending a corner. 
Oh dear. So he was quite a fearsome gentleman. He um, freaked Zinedine Zidane out so much um, in one confrontation. Zidane thought he was going to do it to him, I think. Um, yeah. Zidane, who was you know reasonably combustible, I think it's fair to say, um, turned around and, and, and clocked him in the first half and, and was sent off in a Copa del Rey match. And um, I, I remember, I, th- I think it was uh, Jorge Valdano uh, bursting into the, the, the referee's uh, dressing room at, at half-time at the Ramon Sanchez-Pijuan to, to, to complain about it. And Alfaro, the next time he played Real Madrid, um, posed for the cover of Estadio Deportivo, which is the uh, main sports newspaper in, in Seville, with a scalpel between his teeth, smiling and doing a thumbs up. Nice. Um, so he was he was very much playing up uh, to this sort of image. So the point I'm making via that rather like wide um, diversion is the fact that Sevilla turn from this um, very sort of gritty "you don't mess with us" type club to these entertainers, and particularly mm. you start with the Juan de Ramos era. They were absolutely brilliant to watch. Around that time, um, you think which when Dani Alves, which, which this, is the season? This this is like two thousand six, two thousand seven. Well, Andy, um, let me back that up for you because um, the International Federation of Football History and Statistics, yes. I'm sure everybody is 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 aware of. Um, they uh, since nineteen ninety one, they have uh, uh, picked the World Club Team of the Year. Uh, it shows the clubs that finish top of the ranking for each year. And, okay. Uh, Roma based, were the based first on? side, based on a number of things. They are, of course, the International Federation of Football History and Statistics. Um, mm-hmm. They don't play by the same rules you and I play by, Andy. They make up rules <laughs> as they go along. But um, but Liverpool are the current holders of this thing, 2019. I'm sure Bayern will probably win it. But um, you go down the list, you've got Atletico Madrid, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Bayern, Barca, Inter in 2010, of course, Manchester United. It's usually the side that wins the Champions League. But in 2006, 2007, Sevilla won the World's Club Team of the Year, according to the uh, IFF, uh, what they called the um, the IFFHS, which which massively, I think, backs up your point about Sevilla at that, at that yeah. time. Yeah, and it's, it's easy to forget, of course, that they were really close to to winning the league under Juan de Ramos as well. They were, they were still in with a chance going into the, 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 the final couple of games of the season. And, of course, a lot of that is around um, Monchi's willing and dealing. I don't think he particularly objects to you using that that, that phrase, fortunately. Um, and he's he's done an incredible job, and he's he's been a huge part of it. But the whole culture of what's expected of of, of Sevilla has has absolutely changed. Um, but I do think that just because they've got to that point where they are seen as the bosses of the Europa League. To think that they would be satisfied with that is is incorrect. Mm. They'll want to take it on to to, to to the next level. And if we look at how you get to the next level, well, how you do that is with making more money. And basically, I think there are two issues really with, with this approach of, of finishing third, which I, I, I totally understand the, the point um, in the Champions League group. Because if you finish... Firstly, it's very difficult to aim to finish third in the Champions League group. Yeah. 
Um, I think you've got as much chance of finishing fourth as third if you end up trying to aim for finishing third in the, in, mm-hmm. in the Champions League group. And, you know, they would never say no to carrying on in Europe after Christmas if they can't make the top two. The fact is, if you do make the top two and you get into the last 16 in the Champions League, you, you're going to make lots more money. Mm-hmm. And that is something that, that, that matters in terms of um, prize money, in terms of TV market pool. And you get even more of that if there's one of the other Spanish clubs, at least, that, that, that don't make it as well. Because presuming mm-hmm. you're starting off with four, I guess in most years we're presuming that um, Real Madrid and Barcelona at least get into the last 16. If another one of those drops out, you get a bigger chunk of the TV market pool. So um, that is very important to them. And money is something that, at that sort of level, that sort of level of money is, is something that Sevilla can do a lot with, particularly in this in this post-COVID environment. Um, and I think the other thing is about really establishing themselves in uh, the Champions League and the final stages of the Champions League, which is something that I know they, they desperately want to do in terms of, global exposure in terms of improving their infrastructure because so much of what they do is still based on on player trading and that is something that that makes monchi even more valuable you know something that he's come back to do and that's that's why when he was at his absolute peak just before he left Sevilla the first time i could never com- entirely understand why he was linked to say a or not necessarily a Barcelona, but a Paris Saint-Germain or a club like that, because you think, well, making money from transfers is of limited interest to them, really, isn't it? It's about getting the players who are going to do the job um, for them. And what he does is far more around uh, creativity and opportunity than you would necessarily need at an absolute elite club. Um, And... Going forward, this this is this is going to be hugely important for them. I think we've seen with a number of clubs over the years, getting from that point where you can be dominant in the Europa League, and in fairness, if you're talking about certainly the, the, the titles that they've got down, um, there's no club as dominant as, as Sevilla in that league. But to, to get from that point where you're dominant in the Europa League, to where you can consistently reach knockout rounds of the Champions League. It takes time. I think Shakhtar Donetsk are really quite a good example of that. Yeah. So um, it's something that they're definitely working on. I think if you look at the the year before last, when they got to the last eight by knocking out Manchester United, it shows that even in a weak year, because that is the worst severe side that I can think of for, for a few years, actually. They did terribly that season and they got through three coaches and they only just scraped into Europe, thanks to the aforementioned Joaquin Capados, um, for, the, for the season afterwards. But yet they still managed to roll over Manchester United and they still managed to give Bayern a game as well in that time. Um, so I think it's clear that there's, there's further to go even if it feels as if they've reached some sort of a ceiling, it's definitely not the way that they see it. It is over. Super Sevilla. Kings of Europa yet again for a sixth time. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. 
Right, Andy, I'd like to uh, I, I'd like to uh, turn your attentions to the the coming season. It's nearly upon us, and I suppose I'm. Uh, I, well, it's not just me. It's uh, one or two of our listeners are wanting to know your thoughts on 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 what, what, what how how you think certain things will, will play out. Got a question here from uh, Mark Digay who says, uh, "Andrea Pirlo at Juventus. How do we see this one going, Andy? What do you reckon? What what are your hopes, dreams, fears around Pirlo and Juventus?" Well, I think first off, what they've got to do is um, get him some kit sorted because, as Kate Mason and I were saying on the ramble the other day I think the fact that he's appeared in his first couple of training sessions in what can only be described as not optimally fitting training gear is one of the biggest disappointments because right. this is one of the most elegant gentlemen in football and he looks like he's wearing Sarri's old kit that's left over um, which I have an enormous issue with you, you expect him to be stylish if if, if nothing else um, the concerns I have over this appointment is it's not just about um, the, the fact that Pirlo's got no experience of um, top-level coaching, top-level head coaching. It's the fact that it clearly wasn't part of the plan. You know, they mm-hmm. appoint him as under-23 managers and then they um, flip reverse and make him head coach the, the week afterwards. That makes me think, because what he's definitely going to need is support around him. He's going to need the right people around him and he's going to need the right support at board level. Now, if the board aren't completely on the, the ball, I think he's not got an incredible chance to succeed there. Um, I don't think there's any potential damage to him in terms of reputation, unless he gets it really badly wrong. I feel there's clearly enough of a, a click with those players, some of whom he's he's played with and, and, and played with very well in the past. He's, he's clearly got lots of credit in the bank at, at Juventus. Um, but I think, especially with the news that Antonio Conte is going to stay on at, at um, Inter, they've got an enormous fight on their hands to make sure they win the title again next season. Now, that may seem a weird thing to say after winning that many titles in a row, but the fact is they do because that Juventus squad needs a bit of pruning um, and Pirlo really needs Paratici and the other board members to get the squad in order and give him a little bit more dynamism, particularly in, in, in midfield. Now, there are young players for Juventus who I think will go on and will reach the next level. Um, and I think uh, Mary Demerel is, is, is one of those. Um, I think we're all hopeful that Artur can show more of that early promise that he showed at Barcelona before it flattened out. And I know the way that a lot of Barcelona fans have framed the Artur move as um, oh, it's typical Barcelona shooting themselves in the foot, getting rid of a great young player. The fact is, if it was a different context um, in terms of what's happening to Barcelona generally, if you're just ju- judging Artur on his performances – selling him for that amount of money and you, you take the Miriam Pjanic um, deal out of, out of the, the equation, if you just judge them selling Artur on the way he's performed in the last year or so, there's really not that much of an argument, I think. You can't really say, well, okay, we're, we're, we're going to hang on to him in case he's the new Xavi. 
you know, with the way he's performed on, and to be honest, off the pitch, there's there's not really much of an argument against selling him for, for, for quite a big fee. So there's a hope that he could turn into something for Juventus, but it's not a definite, it's not a given by any stretch of the imagination. So work's got to be done on the squad. Inter's squad is, I think, pretty much where Conte would want it. Um, they've already signed Ashraf Hakimi um, for next season. We'll expect more from Ericsson. It looks like they might be getting Sandro Tonali in as well um, at, at the time of recording. Um, so it's going to be really tough for them. I'm interested to see how, and I don't think they can challenge for the title just yet, but I'm interested to see how um, Milan can continue their improvement um, and to see how Roma develop under under new management, see if Lazio come back and and have another go again. Maybe the current state transfer market will help them hold on to the likes of Luis Alberto and Sergei Milinkovic-Savic. So uh, I think... I hope to see something from Pirlo. I kind of fear as well that maybe he's a faithful club servant that is being used as a placeholder until a higher stock coaches come on the market next summer. Because you think of the ones that could possibly be available next summer. Guardiola, would Juventus be interested? Yes. Zidane, would Juventus be interested? Yes. Um, so I, I, th- I think there's there's a lot of unknowns so far. I mean, I hope that it's not so difficult for him that he gets burnt and doesn't come back to coaching. I think mm-hmm. that's the most important thing. Uh, do I hope that a few things go wrong for him so it's a more open title race? Yes, absolutely. I really <laughs> hope that. I, I don't wish any ill to him whatsoever, but a more open Serie A would be would be great oh, yeah. for, for for everyone. But. I think there's an awful lot to deal with. And the way that the appointment itself has been handled does not make me think, yeah, Juventus have got a plan here. Mm. I, I'm quite fascinated to see how it goes. Uh, and I'm sure we all are, yeah, quite frankly. Andy, the other, do you think um, they'll sort his leisure wear out, Marcus? I mean, they've got to do I, that, surely. I, I, I think, he'll, I think he's, he'll be on top of that uh, come, the, uh, come the starting gun. Don't you worry. Don't you you're worry saying he's going to bring stuff from home. Is that what you're saying? Could do. But I'd imagine he'd probably get them to, to you know, fit fitted on request. Yes, uh, you would hope so. You would oh hope yes, so. oh yes. Um, Andy, let's finish with this one from Steve Watson, uh, Big Steve, as I like to call him, or Watto, maybe. Uh, uh, sorry, Steve, if you hate that. Um, <laughs> He asks this. There's lots of focus on Barcelona and Ronald Koeman at the moment, but where are Real Madrid in all this? It's a good question, Andy, because Real Madrid must be kind of rubbing their hands together at the moment. Yeah, I, I don't know, because they, they will be, of course. I mean, they'll be absolutely delighting in Barcelona's difficulty, but there are so many um, open questions for Real Madrid going into next season. Of course, yeah. they'll be delighted to have got La Liga over the line because it's what Zinedine Zidane said was um, his his plan. It was his stated aim. It was his stated priority before the, the, the start of last season. Um, but, you know, we've, we've talked a lot on both the Ramble and on the continent about how Zinedine Zidane has a very, very different job to accomplish the second time around at Real Madrid um, than he did the first time because the first time, a lot of it was him being 
a more glamorous version of Vicente del Bosque. You know, the, the, mm-hmm. the caretaker deluxe, um, yeah. the uh, friendly uncle who, or, you know, in his case, rather more brooding uncle that, that would um, help a very gifted generation fulfill their potential and he did a tremendous job at at that and you look at three champions leagues especially in the real madrid context where the champions league straight european cup is a massive part of their history there is no arguing with that and even if it would go south from this point onwards zinedine zidane will always remain a real madrid legend as much for what he did as a coach um as for his for his playing career um but you look at that squad and you think of what could and should happen to it for, for next season. Now, um, Sergio Ramos continues to astound, but um, he's at a point now where they need to be looking at competition, if not succession. He's 34 years old. Um, then you look at Rafael Varane and the difficulties he had in the second game against Manchester City, which is not something that people are going to forget quickly, even if Varane does remain one of the very best defenders in the world. Um, Zidane's got to get more out of Eden Hazard. Um, He's uh, got to get more out of a few other players in the squad. You know, what do they do with Vinicius Junior going forward? Um, Can Rodrigo uh, build on a, a few good bits this season? And, you know, he's not always been great at at bringing young players through. Um, Can he get Eden Militao more involved or is that going to be an expensive mistake that the club can't really afford at at this point in um, their financial situation? Because, of course, they're doing this um, half a billion euro rebuild of the Bernabeu. Can Federico Valverde become the dominant player in midfield? And also, he's got to work out what they're going to do with Modric. How do they phase him out? Has Casemiro got past his best? And I know Casemiro's not an old boy yet, um, but I think even even at 28, it's felt to me like he's physically creaking at points in the last year. So the question is, um, I mean, we already know that Casemiro, Kroos and Modric, despite being a fantastic three-man midfield for Real Madrid in in their day, have been absolutely brilliant. They, they can't go in with that three-man midfield every game anymore. Uh, Valverde is important. There needs to be more competition elsewhere for um, Casemiro. And, you know, I, I think they'll be looking at re- reducing Tony Kroos's starts. It was, a, it was a surprise to me that he got an extend, extended contract last, last time he did. Um, in terms of the succession for Marcelo, they're well set. With, with with Furlong Mendy, uh, who I think had a really good first season there. Um, but then you've got to look at um, how does Asensio become m- more dominant in, in, in the team? Um, how long do they rely on Karim Benzema? And is Lukijovic proper competition? Clearly some transfers are going to have to take place, but... They don't have an enormous amount of money in the pot at the moment. And whereas if we go back a couple of years, Real Madrid were really good at selling players that not only did they not want anymore, but they'd make quite clear they didn't want anymore. So I think you look particularly at Mesut Ozil, uh, Angel Di Maria, that they made good uh, returns from, despite the fact that they didn't want them anymore. Now, they might manage to get rid of Hamas Rodriguez because 
who always seemed a bit of a weird signing to me, even though he's had his moments at Real Madrid. There's, there's, there's no doubt about that. Um, he didn't really seem like a planned signing for that much money. You think of the money tied up in his wages. Okay, that's maybe the thin end of the wedge. I think they'll manage to get a good destination for him. But what about Isco? What about Gareth Bale? You know, they need to create some some sort of transfer pot from somewhere. What, what about Mariano, who, who they went to great lengths to buy back from, from Lyon as a sort of penalty box player alternative? And they've barely used, really. So the squad still needs a refresh. Um, and I, I think a, a little bit like at the beginning of last season, I think if you're Atletico, you're looking at Real Madrid and Barcelona and thinking, if we can get our ducks in a row, we've got half a chance here. Of, of going go. and winning the league, because they they are both in transition to greater or lesser extent. Real Madrid and Barcelona, and that is going to give you an enormous start. I think this season, which has been a transitional one for Atletico, and which Diego Simeone always said would be a transitional uh, season for them, I think it would have stood them in quite good stead if they can make the right decisions, not in terms of wholesale player changes, but in a few little tweaks here and there. And Simeone can look at his own approach, make a few little tweaks to that. I think they can have a genuine crack at La Liga next season. But what's going to happen at Real Madrid is is, is fascinating because the current shit show at Barcelona is overshadowing the fact that they have got quite a lot of work to do. Andy, Atletico Madrid winning the league would be just fine with me, baby. <laughs> Love that kind of chat. What a way to end this week's mailbag with talk of the title for Atletico Madrid. Put all the money you have onto that because Andy Brassel <laughs> said it's definitely going to happen. Andy, come the end of the season, if that hasn't happened and people have, you know, they've, they've had to sell their homes and so on, um, because of that bet you just made them put on. How will that make you feel? Um, well, I will simply direct them straight to you because you're the host of the podcast and any obnoxious opinions of mine are your responsibility. Well, I hate to sound like the Greek authorities, Andy, but I just wish you'd apologise. That's all. But uh, <laughs> quite clearly, you won't. So there we are, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to The Mailbag this week. It's been an absolute pleasure. We'll see you next week. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.